Identify yourself. Lieutenant Sulu of the Starfleet vessel Enterprise. This is First Officer Spock. You're a Vulcan. I feel no pressing need to talk to an eater of roots and leaves. Humans at least are omnivorous. Those were the Kazinti, carnivorous cats from the 1970s Star Trek cartoon. You might know that Star Trek also has replicated meat, that Doctor Who has monsters that eat humans, and that to serve man, it's a cookbook. Science fiction has questioned our relationship with other animals for hundreds of years. I'm Ian McDonald, and I've been talking to the experts in the fiction that dances around the line separating us from other animals, and the occasional alien that chooses the vegan option. Confession. I'm a complete geek. In my insufficiently misspent youth, I set up a Star Trek society at the University of London, mainly to have somewhere to play role-playing games. So when science fiction and animals topped the vegan options running poll of episode ideas at allourideas.org slash vegan option, that warmed the cockles of my heart. So thank you for giving me the feedback about what shows you'd like me to make. You can vote on episode ideas and suggest new ones. If you go to theveganoption.org, there's a link at the bottom of the page, as well as the archive of all the old shows and all the show notes with lots of extra information. But I am completely outclassed by Canadian Dr Cheryl Vint. She edited the Animal Studies issue of the Journal of Science Fiction Studies and wrote a book on the subject, Animals and Alterity. As well as looking at instances of animals in science fiction, of which there are many more than people thought when I started writing that book and they thought I was crazy for choosing that research topic. I'm also interested in the ways that the intellectual framework science fiction gives us for thinking about communicating with different kinds of species, different kinds of consciousnesses, can also help us think through our relations with uh, the other species with whom we share this planet. Thank you, listeners, for your tweets and messages about science fiction. Listener Dan Howe tweeted that he was inspired in his journey towards becoming vegan by a 1958 novel by James Blish called A Case of Conscience, which wasn't about animals at all. It was about a Roman Catholic Jesuit scientist making contact with, a, with an alien secular utopia. Uh, he, he tweeted, quote, in the debate on whether aliens have souls, stroke can be exploited. For me, many of the same arguments apply to other Earth animals. That exactly captures precisely what I think is promising about science fiction, that kind of approach to to difference and to considering another kind of relation other than hierarchy. We're also going to hear from Robert Mackay in Sheffield, England. I don't think there are many thinly disguised vegetarian tracks. I think what's a much more interesting possibility is that novels exceed what their writers think of them. And from Tara Lomax, a PhD candidate in Melbourne, Australia. The most fundamental essence of science fiction as a genre, questioning what kind of world we have, what kind of world where we're going, and questioning the role that society has put animals in. And I don't think that its job is to give answers. 
This geeky corner of academia is, as you'll probably expect, full of eaters of roots and leaves. Robert Mackay and Tara Lomax are vegan. Dr Vint calls herself, modestly I think, a vegetarian with vegan tendencies. I was surprised to find out how far this theme goes back. We begin with a first contact with vegetarian aliens that was published in 1726. Yes, I think that um, particularly book four of Gulliver's Travels uh, represents both what's most promising but also potentially limiting about um, addressing these issues through speculative fictions. Because on the one hand, you have Gulliver living with this horse-like species and... These are the ultra-rational intelligent talking horses. Yes, they do everything based on this huge investment in, in logic and reason. And he has these great experiences among them. So by the end, Gulliver comes to prefer the horse species over his uh, fellow humans. Uh, but yet one can then walk away from this, realizing that it's a metaphor and not necessarily move to asking the question about whether horses have a reason. We're going to explore three themes and Gulliver's Travels shows us all of them. There is a reversal. Those horses treat barbaric humans as beasts of burden. The boundary of humanity is blurred. Those horses are smart and the humans, they live with are brutish. And those horses show us, although it's a bit of a parody, an alternative way of living. The 2013 series of Doctor Who begins with a great example of reversal. My client requires a steady diet of living human minds, healthy, free-range human minds. He loves and cares for humanity. In fact, he can't get enough of it. It's obscene. It's murder. It's life. The farmer tends his flock like a loving parent. The abattoir is not a contradiction. No one loves cattle more than Burger King. The kind of alibi offered about the care shown is one of the ways that science fiction can help us see this discourse from another perspective, help us realise what it might be like to be the cow so loved by Burger King. Of course, the monster that eats humans is an old adversary. In War of the Worlds, H.G. Wells, 1898, invading Martians capture humans and suck the blood from their veins. The bare idea of this is no doubt horribly repulsive to us. But at the same time, I think that we should remember how repulsive our carnivorous habits would seem to an intelligent rabbit. War of the Worlds, of course, is a satire of colonialism. And so one of the reversals it's accomplishing is imagining the imperial centre of London being invaded. But it also has that human-animal reversal in the fact that the Martians are harvesting us for our blood. Well, this came from H.G. Wells, who, who more openly mocked vegetarians. I think it's not necessarily uncommon to find people willing to raise these questions, but still believe in a kind of human exceptionalism where part of why um, monsters is uh, a phrase I think that came to you for this sort of reversal pattern is that very often, as Wells just says, suddenly these habits appear horrifying when they're applied to humans, but given that we still are very much invested in a human-animal hierarchy, they don't seem horrifying when applied to animals. To Serve Man by Damon Knight, 1950, televised in 1962. 
there's a long tradition of kind of pulp science fiction stories where aliens might want to invade us or um, they're otherwise our antagonists, but this is the only one done somewhat humorously in the original story, although more serious in Twilight Zone, where uh, they come not to take our resources or our planet, but just to cook us. Don't get on that ship! The rest of the book, to serve men, it's, it's a cookbook! They originally thought that to serve man meant the aliens were there to serve man, as in be a service to us, give us all their new technologies. Because that's, obviously that's what people want to do. They never kind of questioned why an alien species would travel so far to come here and, and to serve us. There's just a sort of presumption of the deservedness uh, of humanity that it should be so served. Under the Skin, a spoiler alert, not just for Michelle Weber's novel, which was published in Scotland in 2000, but also for a film based on it that's coming out this year, Under the Skin shares the alien's perspective on this. Dr Robert Mackay of Sheffield University calls it... Dark, contemporary, um, science fiction, gothic novel. The thing about Vodsorts was, people who knew nothing whatsoever about them were apt to misunderstand them terribly. The, there is a woman called Isserly who uh, drives around picking up male hitchhikers you think that she's picking them up for sexual reasons, but in actual fact, she's sizing them up as potential meat to send back as a very highly prized commodity on their home planet, which is not named. Her understanding of herself is that she is a human being, really. She is a person, and this allows her to look at what we call human beings on Earth as lesser kinds of beings, in fact, as animals, as vodsels. In the end, though, vodsels couldn't do any of the things that really defined a human being. In their brutishness, they'd never evolved to use hunsha. Their communities were so rudimentary that hisissins did not exist. Nor did these creatures seem to see any need for chael, or even chael sin. And when you looked into their glazed little eyes, you could understand why. If you were looking clearly, that is. What's wonderful about that use of completely made-up words that it's impossible to know what the concepts are is that they show that when you say animals can be eaten because they do not have language, what you've really just got is a little logical structure that you can put anything in and swap it around. It's sort of empty of meaning in a way. As I say, it's entirely contingent on whoever's in charge. There is this pattern of as soon as animals start to demonstrate capacities for whatever we said is the thing that humans can do that they can't do, then the grounds just shift. So, you know, if they have communicative systems we have to acknowledge or language, well, then it's tool use is the difference between us and them. Or if, you know, they show capacities for using tools, then it's like, you know, abstract reasoning. Um, so having a concept of mortality, for example. So it really, to me, demonstrates why this absolute boundary between humans and animals is something that we just continually have to construct in order not to question some of our practices. So one of the things that's astonishing about Isserly's ethical positions in the book is that she feels a very strong uh, ethical duty towards what human beings would call animals, sheep, dogs, uh, those sorts of things. And that's largely in part because they have four legs and members of her species have four legs. There is one science fiction franchise that asks us to question not so much human exceptionalism, 
but absolutely everything. The Matrix is the world that has been pulled over your eyes. Humans becoming an, an energy source for intelligent machines, sucking out our life force in, in a way that's quite similar to the kind of industrial way that Wells's Martians are extracting blood. Tara Lomax. I actually found it to be a very convoluted film and couldn't quite get um, my head around it. But then when I did add, as a vegan, that, that emotional connection to thinking about the ideas between, you know, living in a lie, living in an illusion. Welcome to the real world. I then could understand it in such a more committed way. It has been able to inspire, yeah, the short film The Matrix. I am Mufius. Which has become a great direct allegory for um, the agriculture industry. It is the story we tell ourselves about where meat and animal products come from. This family farm is a fantasy. If welfare campaigners can have some fun and produce a sci-fi skit, then why can't the vegan option? Carnist monsters on television never seem to stop and have a proper conversation about food ethics. So I got together with actress Sally Beaumont and we decided to rectify this. The plasmic resonator connects to the energy scoop. The scoop connects to the planetary web. It is dinner time, and humanity will be... Ah, yes. This looks like a... Ooh. A tasty human. Well, not really. Time Lord. Two hearts, blue box, slight difference. But, hello, I'm the Doctor. I will give you one warning. Go. Now. Leave Earth and humanity alone. Why? You intend to murder humanity. Billions of lives cut short, civilization wiped out. And? Well, that's not very friendly now, is it? We are hungry. Ah. We need to eat. Yes, but people. There is nothing so delicious as human neurotransmitters. Now that's beside the point. I I I'm sure you could find something else. I mean... They're an intelligent life form. Intelligence is relative. We feel the movement of the spheres and the thoughts of the hive. Things no puny human ever could. Some animals are simply more equal than others. Look how humans treat their prey. They understand this. But they are not just intelligent. You are an energy form, and you have accessed the sum total of human knowledge. You know of which they are capable. Why do you think we spared humanity until they'd finished the Harry Potter films? Oh, good old JK. But we dare not risk another sex in the city. Look again at the lives of humans. Sample their joys and sorrows and dreams. Shakespeare, Pixar, Leonardo da Vinci. Leonardo would agree with us. He saw no difference between killing a human and killing another Earth animal. That's because he was a vegetarian. Or, at least he was when I met him. At least our destruction of humanity will be humane. Far better than their treatment of their prey. And we will make you an offer. We do not need to eat every single human. The species could survive. How about we eat everyone but the vagans? What the... The ones I met on Peladon were fantastic miners, but... Oh, you mean vegan. 
If that's the line you're taking this down, let me concentrate your data feed a bit. Showing you a few things. I can't believe I'm saying this, but... Yes. Go vegan. That's a bit... extreme. Where would we get our protein? Uh, I'll have a word with the Nestine Consciousness about their protein planets. Meanwhile, I've just unlocked the 30-day vegan challenge. Why don't you take a look at that? Yeah, everyone likes this one. Must find all 59 parts of the Vegan Freaks interview with Gary Francine. And while you're distracted with that, I'll connect this Axonite cable. Sorry, but it still sounds like too big a step for right now. I hope you won't judge us for our food choices, but maybe next planet. <laughs> You can't make a move on Earth without the Axonite cable draining your power into the TARDIS core. If that happens, you will be destroyed too. That was your great plan? Suicide! Shall we discuss the ethics of that? Science fiction also looks at the boundary that separates us from other animals. Let's pick this theme up in 1818 with Mary Shelley's classic of gothic horror, Frankenstein. One of the important things about the creature is that he's made of parts from the dissecting room and slaughterhouse floors. And so as well as being something other than human and being the sort of first created being that puts this paradigm into science fiction, he also is um, a hybrid human animal. In the late 19th century, Darwinism shattered the scientific basis of any absolute boundary between man and beast. This inspired our old friend H.G. Wells to write his 1896 novel, The Island of Dr. Moreau. A novel which is about a scientist vivisector who sort of makes monsters by trying to humanise animals by conducting experiments on them. He has these rituals he has them go through and these mantras they have to recite. So he has to keep policing this boundary so they don't sort of fall back into more animal-like behaviour. That kind of fear of devolution is something that we see in a lot of contemporary fiction. The idea that, oh, if it turns out the humans are really evolved from animals, that all these things we culturally associate with animals to do with violence and irrationality are sort of lurking beneath the surface in humans and might erupt out at any point. And, and civilization is this sort of not very stable veneer. Sci-fi scientists uplift other animals to intelligence again and again. For example, Olaf Stapleton's 1944 novel Sirius is about an uplifted dog. Late last century, David Brin said a series of novels in a universe of uplifted aliens. And in 2003, I got in on the act. I contributed a few paragraphs about animal activists to Transhuman Space, a series of role-playing game books that posit a future where, amongst lots of interesting things, the European Union has banned land animal farming following a campaign led by an uplifted cow. Discover Planet of the Apes. Novel by Pierre Boulle, 1963. Films, 1968 onwards. That was one set of films that I watched, and I can't not watch without sort of getting this sort of sense of jumping up and down inside me. A civilization where humans run wild in the jungle. The entire franchise is fascinating and 
the original 1968, The Planet of the Apes, of course, is an anti-nuclear satire. So then as we move into the later films in the original franchise, the apes come much more to symbolize racial difference than species difference. And that it had absolutely had a complete civil rights sort of angle to it. But I think that there's a potential to go back to it and say, OK, well, at the end of the day, they are animals. There's still a very clear boundary. It's not based on your species. It's based on if you can talk. Taylor, um, Charlton Heston's character, who is the human who ends up in this ape society, he too has those struggles that we also see in Under the Skin, where he demonstrates that he is communicative, that he can reason, that he can write. Um, initially, he can't speak because he, he has an injury that keeps him from speaking. As soon as he's able to demonstrate these capacities to the ape scientists, they immediately treat him as special and protect him. And he's set apart as different than the other humans who indeed are a less evolved species on that planet. 1971's escape from the planet of the apes turns the tables again. The ape scientists end up coming back to Earth and being treated like animals. The humans want to put these animals in the zoo straight away. And then they start talking. I don't are you mad? Until we know who our friends are and who our enemies are. And how in the name of God are we to know that unless we communicate? And they talk very intelligently. And they do show some concern for the way um, other primates are treated by humans. And so there's a degree of animal rights um, activism there. So we have there, I think, a blurring of the boundaries between the animal, the human, and the potential of the animal. In 2011's Rise of the Planet of the Apes, scientists accidentally uplift a chimpanzee called Caesar. The film, for, for not using animal actors and for siding with non-humans, won Peter's seal of approval. But at Flinders University in Australia, Dr Nick Taylor disagreed. He wrote in The Guardian, The chief theme in the film, intelligence, ensures that this remains an anthropocentric piece that shies away from asking any of the important questions. The representation of these animals is highly humanised. I don't necessarily want to say that this is positive or negative. On the other hand, Tara and Cheryl gave me the impression that they see the glass of important questions as half full. He's been uplifted again, indeed. Social relationships he forms with his non-uplifted brethren suggests that you know, he's, he doesn't have that status of being exceptional that he is leading a kind of resistance on behalf of at least all primates only, and the apes, for instance, ride horses and don't show any particular care for the horses and things like that. I think uh, Planet of the Apes does something really significant in, in how it sets up the species divide and the boundaries between the human and the animal. Don Lepin wrote his provocative novel Animals during his own journey to veganism. In this dark future... The boundary between human and animal falls within our own species. In this future, there's humans who it becomes okay to eat because that's the only source of meat left, that all the animals are gone. And it has to do with sort of legislative changes in how that category of being a person is constructed that exclude people with certain kinds of cognitive or communicative lack of ability, lack of capacity. Generations earlier... Mongrels had almost universally been assumed to be human. But no one had thought to say, in so many words, in any of the relevant statutes, now that such a great change in public perception had occurred, and mongrels are widely, even generally, assumed to be less than human, would the courts follow? 
And so he's very much drawing on that discourse by which we posit a certain set of qualities that animals don't have, and then it becomes okay to eat them. How would you sum up the way science fiction explores the boundary? I think it frequently interrogates that boundary, often in ways that don't directly link to animals, although I think those links are there to be made, but that generally the boundary is moved and shifted and adjusted and questioned, but it remains even if its scope is different. Animals is just one example of dystopian science fiction that speculates about mass extinctions and asks what they do to our relationship with other animals. Quite a few dystopias are ecological dystopias. That also entails a kind of absence of animals because there's nothing for anyone to live on. In the movie Soylent Green, we're eating people because there's nothing else to eat. Although in the novel Make Room, Make Room, on which it's based, the reason Soylent Green is called Soylent is because uh, it comes from soy. So it's sort of imagining veganism as a dystopia in two ways in that case. They, they added the it's people in for the movie. Absolutely, yes. Why did they do that? Because uh, I guess eating soy didn't seem horrifying enough. I don't know. I need the old Blade Runner. This is a bad one. Bad one. Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Philip K. Dick, 1968. Adapted for the screen as Blade Runner, 1982. Earth has become polluted by radiation. A sign of the utter devastation of the future is the absence of animals. Although in that case, somewhat rarely, the absence of animals is specifically mourned. These pet animals are highly regarded by their owners. Although most people have to make do with electric animals. This theme is much stronger in the novel, but the film includes it in the empathy test. Emotive questions that trick the calm, artificial replicants into revealing themselves. Someone gives you a casket and wallet. I wouldn't accept it. Also, I'd report the person who gave it to me to the police. Eating meat or using leather products, these are things that are very commonplace for the readers and, in fact, not at all shocking, although they're meant to be for the characters within the novel. And thus, I think it really successfully captures that sense that we really are in a different world that operates by different values, and the values place animals in a radically different moral position. And many examples speak very strongly to our inability to imagine just not eating meat. Star Trek has replicators. Margaret Atwood's Oryx and Crake has a thing she calls chicky knobs, basically chicken flesh that grows without a central nervous system. Let's finish with a couple of futures that are more friendly to animals. We no longer enslave animals for food purposes. But we have seen humans eat meat. You've seen something as fresh and tasty as meat, but inorganically materialized. Of course, Star Trek is known for its liberal humanism and sort of imagining a society post various kinds of exploitation of others, and so to include animals within that vision. It's one of the reasons why it's one of the best science fiction television series ever. The idea of sort of um, artificial food is sometimes a trend in science fiction, although sort of explicitly saying we don't exploit animals anymore, um, as Riker does, is less common. The most sort of engaged example that I've seen is Karen Travis's Westhar series uh, of novels, which are about a kind of intergalactic civilization that humans stumble into, basically, 
all the various species in the civilization, they all recognize one another as sort of fellow persons. And so no none prey on the others and eat them and things like that. And in a later novel, the Westhara decide that Earth needs to be liberated from the humans. And that's a very common theme in science fiction, that we have to change our ways or we'll be destroyed. Although very often it's um, we have to change our use of nuclear weapons or things like that. Yes, the sort of moral failings of Earth bring us under judgment. Thank you for joining us on this whistle-stop tour of animals and science fiction. There is no time for nuances about horses in Star Trek or for some, for some of the interesting little stories like There Lies the Wub, but there's much more information and links and an extended cut of the Doctor Who skit at theveganoption.org. Thanks to guests, to the other academics who helped with research, to Rob Masters for music and voiceover, for, to Kathleen Lawrence for voiceover, and to Sally Beaumont for the Doctor Who skit. That skit was written by myself with Sally and performed by Sally. The clips and the Doctor Who setting are copyright their respective owners and were used under fair dealing for purposes of media criticism, which this whole show is. I love hearing from listeners about past and future shows. Get in touch at Vegan Option on Twitter and Facebook.com slash Vegan Option as well as TheVeganOption.org. If you like what you hear, please go and give us a positive review on iTunes. Copyright, me. Next show, palm oil. How many great apes can a product kill and still be vegan? <laughs>